Welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What's up, Todd? Hey, Corey, not much. Good, and I'm sorry, it was my fault that we uh, missed last week. Oh, no problem. Work trip. Not a lot of news, anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But we do have some good stuff to talk about today. Yes, so we let's do. jump right to it. Coalition of Utah Republican Legislators, your colleagues, sent a cease and desist letter to Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers, warning them that abortion is still a crime in Utah. The letter said that a voluntary abortion is a felony criminal offense, despite the preliminary injunction in place that's blocking state officials from from prosecuting under the state trigger trigger ban. Uh, If you recall, a Utah judge issued a preliminary injunction blocking Utah's trigger law that would ban abortions except in cases of rape, incest, health of the mother, or severe fetal defect. We talked about this weeks ago, so we don't need to go over it again. But Planned Parenthood filed a lawsuit to block the law, and they found a a judge who agreed with them. I said at the time that the lawsuit was completely frivolous, and I totally stand by what I said. Planned Parenthood's arguments amount to garbage policy, wish casting. That's what I said before, and it's true. There's no basis in law. But anyway, this letter, led by Utah representatives Kira Berkland and Carrie Ann Lisenby, both have been guests on the podcast, I should mention. Uh, Their letter argues that the abortion providers can still be prosecuted for providing abortion services during the period of injunction. Now, I think this was big news this week. Let me start by saying I'm not entirely sure that they're correct on their reading of the law. I mean, the judge granted the injunction based on Planned Parenthood's argument that irreparable harm would be inflicted on women if they can't abort their babies. In other words, the harm would be inflicted if they had to carry the babies. And I'll repeat myself. I think the judge is plainly wrong here, but it is his decision that sort of dictates what's legal and what's not during the injunction period. In any case, to me, the letter highlights the true cost of the injunction, namely the number of performed abortions that continue unabated as long as Utah's law cannot go into effect. And I think it's a serious issue. Todd, what's your take on all this? Well, you know, I think it's uh, for me and and look, at I, I work with Representative Lizenby and Representative Berkland. I, I don't doubt that they have sincerely held beliefs. And I think like you and me, Corey, I think they're frustrated with the delay that has been caused by this injunction. And, you know, we are in an election season. I'm not up for reelection this year. Both of them are. And so I, you know, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to dismiss any of those concerns because th- this is now we're we're going into the third month and it looks like there's no one in sight right now with this injunction. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think that they're wrong on the law. Um, and we passed the trigger bill saying as soon as the Supreme Court uh, overrules this, then this law will go into effect. And the Supreme Court did overrule it. And the uh, the basis that I understand that Judge um, Stone issued this uh, TRO or preliminary injunction was is a little different than what you said. It's uh, that the the question of whether uh, the Utah Constitution, as opposed to the U.S. Constitution, the question of whether the Utah Constitution might protect this right to privacy, this woman's right to uh, an abortion, uh, presents a serious question of policy that uh, he believed justified the preliminary injunction. So I, I take issue with that. I agree with you. I think that, I mean, I don't think that there's even a 1% chance that the Utah constitution protects a woman's right uh, to have an abortion. Um, and I'm frustrated by the delay, but as a legislator for me, and I can only speak for myself, I don't speak for my colleagues, but it's very important to me. And it has been for my 
tenure as a legislator to stay in my lane. What is my lane? My lane is the legislature. So we make the laws. The judicial branch interprets the laws and the executive branch enforces the law. So as I read this letter, I see the authors of the letter and the co-signers saying, we want to interpret the law and we want to enforce the law. And this is the, and this, and we may pass a future law as well, you know, and of course those 20 legislators, they're all house members. They can't pass a future law because a future law has to get 30, you know, uh, 38 votes in the house, uh, 15 votes in the Senate, and it has to not be vetoed by the governor. And so I see this letter as, you know, um, drifting out of the legislative lane. And so for me, I, if I had been asked and I wasn't, I would not have signed on to this letter. And we've heard of, of at least one legislator, Steve Handy, who signed on and said, whoa, this letter was different than the one that I agreed to sign on to. So he's he's basically uh, recanted. And the most interesting thing, I don't think you mentioned this, was the day after the news broke, um, representative, you know, the two authors of the letter, they kind of backpedaled a little bit and said, hey, this wasn't a legal opinion. This was just our own opinion. Mm. But it certainly kind of sounds like a legal opinion. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess I didn't know that. I didn't know, I didn't know they backpedaled a little bit. That makes a little yeah. bit of sense because I think as a legal legal letter, that's where I don't, I'm not sure it's the strongest. But in terms of like getting the message across, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. And I think a lot of Utahns are on the same page of we're tired of the delay. I mean, that's the, the people did speak. You know, the legislature did pass um, legislation. If you want it changed, then go to your legislature and ask, ask for a change in the law. You know, it's not it's not up to a judge to hold things up on no basis other than his own policy views. So a month ago, Corey, well, in August, the Utah Attorney General's office, and I think they've been great on this issue. They asked uh, the Utah Supreme Court for permission to file an immediate appeal of Judge Stone's issuance of this preliminary injunction. And the Utah Supreme Court hasn't said yes or no yet. So I'd like to know what's taking so long. Now, in, in fairness, you know, they, they had two resignations and, and we've been, you know, we just yeah. filled lots. And so maybe they wanted to let the new members catch their breath. But um, I I kind of expect um, that that this should move faster than it's been moving and hopefully they'll start kind of catching up because this is an important enough issue on both sides um, that we need some clarity. Uh, over this past week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis flew two plane loads of migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Now, Martha's Vineyard, that's a premier vacation spot for in Massachusetts. It's for left-wing mega-rich. The Obamas have a house there. The Clintons stayed there throughout his presidency, probably still do. I don't know. The, uh, this episode comes after Governor DeSantis and also Governor Abbott of Texas. They have shipped busloads of migrants to sanctuary cities like Washington, D.C., like New York, to really highlight the border crisis uh, under President Biden and what's going on. I just want to remind everyone, a sanctuary city, remember, what they mean by that is this is a city that essentially is openly declared that uh, illegal immigrants are welcome, will not be apprehended, will not be prosecuted, will not be deported. Basically, they're saying it's a free zone for anyone who's, who's undocumented coming across the border. And it's essentially a magnet, obviously, because it's, it's a safe place where, where uh, undocumented immigrants can kind of safely hang out. So. Uh, Governor DeSantis, Governor Abbott is sort of like taking these cities up on on their on their uh, proposition, sort of like, OK, you say you want them. Makes sense. 
here you go. And the Biden administration has actually used the same tactic. That's the truth. That, what I mean by that is flying or busing migrants to Florida, to other states without warning. Somehow it's human trafficking when Republican when a Republican governor delivers illegal immigrants to cities, the sanctuary cities. It's not when when Biden does it. And instead, you know, sort of like these cities are constantly virtue signaling about how much they want them. Governor DeSantis says, great, <laughs> we'll give you what you asked for. And, and now they're claiming uh, it's human trafficking. And while Martha, Martha's Vineyard, mega rich liberal community, they did provide immediate assist, assistance to migrants, which I think is the right thing to do, of course. But, but very quickly, they loaded them up on buses and had the migrants removed from Martha's Vineyard within a day, just one day. And we're only talking about 50 people. 50 people were too much for this for this self-proclaimed sanctuary city to handle. They called in the National Guard same day to haul the migrants away. Meanwhile, I don't think I have to tell you guys, right now, 8,000-plus migrants are crossing the, into tiny border towns along the border every single day. 8,000-plus? That's what they're seeing. So, Todd, do you support Governor DeSantis' tactic here? Uh, absolutely. I do support Governor DeSantis' and Governor Abbott's tactics. And I think... Um, it's just exposing the hypocrisy of some of these uh, Democratic-led cities. Um, Chicago, Mayor Lightfoot, I think she had 500 immigrants show up in a city of almost 3 million and declared a state of emergency. Again, a border town with 30,000 may have, you know, a third of their town uh, show up, you know, uh, in, in one in, in one month or at least one year. And, you know, Washington, D.C. has, you know, uh, New York cities, uh, they're all you know, freaking out with a couple dozen or a couple hundred, you know, New York's the largest city in the country. And so I haven't heard one um, coherent explanation of why it's wrong for Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York, Martha's Vineyard, uh, the Naval Academy, which is Washington, basically, why it's wrong for them, but it's okay for border towns in Texas and um, and whatnot. What I don't like about the Martha's Vineyard story is um, it, it appears from preliminary reports that some of these migrants were lied to, um, uh, that they were deceived into where they were going and why they were going there. And you said that they loaded them up on a bus. They had to put them on a ferry first because Martha Vineyard, Martha's Vineyard is an island. So they had to ferry them off the island. I, I, think, um, I think if we're going to have a completely irresponsible open border that I think I think that the rather than Texas and Florida bearing the brunt of that in Arizona, I think it should be spread out throughout the country. And um, and I think it's hypocritical for the Democrats to cry foul when when they just get a small taste of their own medicine. Yeah, totally. I, I absolutely love love what they're doing here because it, it highlights the problem. And sometimes Sometimes you have to do something that's a little bit out of the ordinary in order to catch attention because yeah. these these border towns, like you said, most of them are not large. They might have 30,000 everyday residents there, and they're getting tens of thousands of people crossing through every single day. And sometimes they're saying they don't have the resources to handle this. No. I, I personally don't see what's cruel about moving people to another state, honestly. They're coming from many miles away. Like I say, the border towns, they're in crisis as well. They can't handle a flood of migrants. It's not like they're they're equipped to do it. So if anything, it's actually safer for the migrants because in Martha's Vineyard, there's presumably no coyotes, you know, these uh, human traffickers and, and smugglers and, and gun runners. 
and uh, you know the the cartels that are along the border and they're taking advantage and and uh, you know looking for easy prey. So it's safer in that sense. It's worth saying, you know, Biden's open border policy is what's causing this hum- humanitarian disaster. It really is, and it's it's causing all of these problems. This week, 51 migrants were found dead in the back of a smuggler's diesel trailer. Nobody thinks that's okay. Border crossings are crushing the the old records every single month. Every month, new records are set. People are dying every day, and they're they're living under bridges. They're crossing rivers that are very the, the rivers are very dangerous. When asked, the, the migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard said they thought the border was open. That's what they were told. And why wouldn't they think that it was open when anyone can basically cross? And if if, if you come to the border and, and claim a phony asylum, make a, a an asylum claim, you say the magic words that you uh, you we believe that you're you're in danger for your political beliefs, then the Biden administration just opens the door wide and you can come on in to anyone and everyone. I mean, it really is wide open in that way. And the statistics show that at least 85%, if not more, of these cases of these asylum, uh, asylees that, are, that claim asylum, 85% or more are actually not going to win their case. But honestly, we'll never know because they don't show up for their court date. As soon as they get to America and they claim asylum, then the Biden administration steps aside and says, come on in. And where they go in America, nobody knows. Nobody has any idea. And they have a court date set for them. Very few of them actually return. This, this is a complete crisis. It's, it's driven by the Biden administration. We're having people, this flood of migrants coming to the border because they've been told, rightly, that they can get in without too much trouble. And it's causing this humanitarian crisis. So, you know, good for Governor DeSantis, Governor Abbott, to highlight this issue. It has to be fixed. It has to be addressed. Last week, Utah's Senator Mike Lee received the endorsement from every single Republican senator in the U.S. Senate except one, Todd, Senator Mitt Romney. So Lee's primary opponents have criticized him for not getting along with his Senate colleagues. Whether there's any truth to that, it's very clear that his colleagues like him, at least like him enough to endorse him for re-election. Because there's 50 Republican senators, 48 of them endorse Lee, obviously Lee's 49th. Senator Romney refused to endorse. I think it's deeply disappointing that Senator Romney can't, see, can't bring himself to support Senator Lee. I think it's especially disappointing that Senator Romney said he couldn't decide between Lee and our snake oil salesman, independent candidate, Evan McMullen. Todd, what's your thoughts? Well, I, I think it is. Uh, well, first of all, I, I don't believe Mike Lee endorsed Mitt Romney four years ago. And that's that's what's often left unsaid, not because he didn't like him, not because there's bad blood. Um, but second of all, there was an article less than three weeks ago in a political called Welcome to the Strangest Senate Race in America. And at the end of that article, this is a direct quote from Mitt Romney in political three weeks ago. I've worked with Mike a lot and appreciate the work we do together. That sounds a little bit like an endorsement. And some people have suggested, why doesn't Mike just run an ad with if he wants Mitt Romney's endorsement and say, here's what Mitt Romney says about me. So the, the I, I think the best argument for saying that there should be an endorsement would be for Mitt to say, look at, we need Republican control of the Senate. If a exactly. vote for Mullen doesn't help us do that, a vote for Mike Lee does. But here's the best kept secret in Utah politics. Mitt Romney and um, Mike Lee have worked better together 
uh, than any other two senators from Utah in the last 30 years. And these two like each other. They respect each other. They work together a lot. They're friendly with each other. And I don't think that, uh, well, Mitt Romney said last uh, March, he said, I'm not sure that my endorsement uh, would help Mike Lee. And I, I think he's right about that. Um, I think Mitt Romney is personal friends with or considers himself a friend of Evan McMullen and doesn't um, want to, uh, you know, uh, hurt his feelings, which is, you know, they're big boys and this is politics. But here's the thing. Mike Lee's going to win this race easily with or without Mitt Romney's endorsement. I think some of Mitt's supporters would be disappointed if Mitt endorsed Mike. And I think some of Mike Lee's supporters would be disappointed <laughs> if Mitt, Lee, Mitt Romney endorsed Mike. So I think this is a fun story for the media, but it does not in any way impact their working relationship, which is very, very good. So you make some good points there. I, I, I don't think I necessarily agree that it wouldn't help. Mitt Romney's endorsement may or may not have hurt in the primary. In, at the convention, maybe. Uh, I think it would certainly, it's not going to hurt for the general election. And I think that you you put your finger on it, like, regardless of what we think about each other personally, it's just vital that Republicans retake the Senate and, and stop these horrific political appointees who, who are giving us ESG mandates and, yeah. and are you know, creating the... Uh, massive new regu regulatory regime. So I, I think, uh, Corey, the lack of endorsement is all about Trump and Jan especially January 6th. So Mitt Romney has doubled down against Trump. Mitt, uh, Mike Lee has doubled down kind of in favor of Trump. I think the text messages, although I don't think they were criminal or, or illegal or anything like that, I think it kind of puts Mike Lee in this pro-January 6th camp in some people's minds. And I think Mitt, Mitt Romney doesn't want to kind of muddy those waters because he's been very clear uh, about January 6th and about his feelings about Trump. And so, you know, th these guys are on two different sides of the aisle when it comes to January, well, when it comes to Trump, at least. I don't think Mike Lee is defending anything that happened on January 6th. In fact, and Mike Lee voted to certify the election. I think right. he did everything right. It's just those text messages between the election and January 6th that kind of cast a shadow in some people's minds. We had a few polls released in the past couple of weeks. Uh, McMullen's campaign had released an internal poll that has McMullen leading Lee 47 to 46. We don't know what the methodology is behind that. We just know that, that that's the number that was released. The Lee campaign quickly released its own internal poll showing Lee leading by 18 points, 50 to 32. And then on the heels of that, this uh, third poll came out showing Lee with a slight lead, 43-39. That's from Center Street. Now, Center Street, we should stipulate, is a third-party sort of never-Trump Democrat outfit. It's kind of a sister organization to the Lincoln Project. They support Democrats. If you go to their website, they you know endorsed a bunch of Democrats and basically anyone run, running against a Republican. So that's why they support Ed McMullen. Huge shocker. Their polls showed uh, McMullen is close. But in any event, Todd, which of these polls do you believe, if any? I think if you could put all three of those on a graph and draw the median between them, I think <laughs> I, I don't believe Mike Lee's up by eight points, 18 points. I don't believe that Evan McMullen's up by one point. I think Mike Lee's probably up by seven to nine percent. And I think he'll probably win by about seven percent. Um, that's my best guess. Um, and I think the biggest problem that Evan McMullen has, other than being, you know, wishy-washy on all of the 
issues important to Republicans like pro-life and and things like that, states' rights. Um, I, I mean, when I say wishy-washy, like saying one thing in 2016 and saying the exact opposite in 2022, um, yeah. which is a problem for a politician. I think the biggest problem is a lot of these Utah Democrats, like Misty Snow, who is Mike Lee's 2016 uh, Democratic opponent, have come out publicly and said, we will not support Evan McMullen. He doesn't uh, embody our values and he's not a Democrat. He doesn't fit our platform. And so I think you're going to see a lot of Democrats either leave this blank. I think you'll see a lot of them vote for the libertarian candidate just because he's not Mike Lee and he's not Evan McMullen. I think you'll see some of them will, will, um, uh, write in, is it Kale Weston who was the Democrat? Kale Weston, yeah. And those write-in votes won't be counted because Kale Weston didn't file as a write-in. So you can write in Mickey Mouse. It doesn't count. Same with Kale Weston. And I think a lot of the Democrats just won't mail in their ballots, which is going to hurt the legislative races and the Salt Lake County Council races and the other things. So I, I don't I, I understand the Democrat strategy. I, and I, I won't say it's a bad strategy, but I don't think it's a successful strategy. And I think what they're going to find is they're going to hurt their down races and they're going to hurt their future fundraising because they've kind yeah. of. They've kind of dropped kick a lot of diehard Democrats in the gut and said, you know, we don't care. about. We, we are now the party of anti-Mike Lee. That's all we care about. Anymore. Right, right. Yeah, totally. And we've talked about before, you know, if you're a down ballot candidate, you can't be too super uh, stoked about this whole situation because it's not going to help. Master. So I wanted to say um, Ed McMullen released his poll. The way we found out about it is through this uh, Washington Post columnist, Jen Rubin. Who, I mean, she's basically the equivalent of Rachel Maddow for print. Oh, gee. So a pretty radical progressive. So it kind of shows where McMullen sees where his bread is buttered these days. You know, basically the radical left. Those are his donors. Those are his supporters. And uh, again, Center Street, a Democratic political action group focused on electing Democrats. They're the ones who, who have, uh, they've endorsed Evan McMullen and shown this poll. So, I mean, I mean, Jen Rubin is, pretty far outside the mainstream on the left and you're not going to find any re- utah republicans reading her <laughs> i can't imagine there's more than like like two you know um and you still put you say seven <laughs> or eight percent maybe so i i still put the uh over under at about 10 percent is how much he's going to win by i'll still take the over i bet he wins by 10 to 12 percent uh lee wins by 10 to 12 percent so It'll be interesting, but you know, it, it's, it's a bummer that we have polls like this because it's just, they're not, it's just completely incredible. So. I think you're going to have record turnout. I mean, we're going to have record votes for the third party candidate. I think this third party candidate will get a lot of disenfranchised Democrats and disenfranchised independents. There are some independents who don't like Mike Lee, who are not going to warm up to Evan McMullen. Either. That's a great point. And honestly, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Todd, because I, I hadn't given as much thought, but. The third party candidate and his name slips my mind, but he's he's very active on Twitter. James he's pretty Hansen. darn liberal. I think it's James Hansen, isn't it? James Hansen, yeah. Yeah. So he says he's libertarian, which but he's always taking pretty liberal positions on on Twitter. So I I assume that Democrats might be pretty comfortable with him. The National Review is uh is a conservative magazine. Pretty interesting read for those who, who who've never read it before. Whether well, even if you're not conservative, I think it's good. You know, it's good thought. Um, but they reviewed uh, positions McMullen has taken over the years. You just highlighted this thought. Not not surprisingly, he McMullen claimed a number of conservative positions when he was running for president, and he's since done an about face on several of these. Abortion is one of them. We've talked about that before. 
he was, I mean, he, he had a commercial saying that he was the only pro-life candidate in the, in the race in, in uh, 2016. In other words, he was saying that Trump was not pro-life, but now, you know, just a couple months ago with the, with the Dobbs decision, he said he's actually in favor of preserving Roe v. Wade. And what the, what this article points out too is some really interesting stuff about McMullen's donors, who they are. And the bottom line is he, I mean, he relies pretty heavily on Planned Parenthood supporters, uh, left-wing foundations like the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Silicon Valley Community Foundation. That doesn't sound like conservative group. <laughs> um, he obviously supports the Democrats' plan to gut the filibuster, called the border wall a silly idea, um, and, and supports uh, enhanced gun control. And this one, this is the one that always gets me. He he called the Steele dossier a trusted source. Now we don't have to go down the down this road of explaining what the, the Steele dossier is, but the bottom line is, this is this was the basis for the FBI the FBI used to, you know, basically have the entire the entire Mueller investigation, of the Russia um, Trump hoax was it came out of the Steele dossier, which was a Democrat, uh, you know, connected to the Hillary Clinton um, campaign. A Democrat uh, activist organization put it together. Obviously, a total hoax and a fake. And and McMullen thought it was it was a trusted source, and and he agreed that Trump was a Russian agent since 1987. I mean, just kind of wacko conspiracy theories. I don't know. Anyway, Todd, you saw you saw the article. Any any parting thoughts? We'll we'll we'll, we'll link it in the uh, in the show notes here. Yeah, please do. There is a paywall, so I think a lot of our readers aren't going to want to pay oh. for that. But. Um, uh, the my favorite part of the article, other than him flip flopping on everything you know that I already mentioned, was they said, you know, his whole gist is I, you know, I, I was a spy for the CIA and trust my instincts, and yet um, he he doesn't seem like he was a very good spy. And then they also quote some people who were in the Middle East, kind of running the operations when supposedly Evan McMullen was this key person. And they're like, we've never heard of this guy. I also thought it was interesting when he was in the CIA, he went by David McMullen and now a politician. I think those are two of his you know, given names, but um, why do you go by David and now go by Evan? That's a little bit, I, I don't know. That's just a little bit odd to me. Um, I, I have some friends who have switched to their middle names or whatnot, but it's still, it's a little bit of a question mark to me why why you'd switch. But yeah, the article does not cast McMullen into a positive light. And it does so using his own tweets, his own interviews, you know, um, from 2016 and just complete about face. And I, I think nothing's more important than states' rights, because not only did he say as president in 2016, he would appoint uh, judges who would overturn Roe versus Wade. Now he's saying that states don't have the right to regulate abortion and that we need Congress to step in so that states don't go too far on abortion. So, I mean, and, you know, I, if, you, if you don't want to read the paywall, go to my Twitter account at GOP Todd. I've tweeted a lot of his, uh, retweeted a lot of his tweets from 2016, where he took the exact opposite position than he's taken today. And both were convenient for him at the time, which should, right. should give people a lot of pause. Yep. All right. Good enough. I think that's it. That's all we got for this week. Thanks, Corey. Thanks so much, Todd. Yeah. See you.